Take your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to offer up a fair warning this morning. Uh, Before we get going, before we start uh, in this passage of Scripture, I want you to know that I believe that this is the one of the most difficult passages in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And also uh, that I believe that while it may not be the most difficult passage to deal with application-wise and otherwise, I do believe that the language of this passage is exceedingly difficult. And so I'm warning you this morning uh, to pay attention, put your thinking caps on, close Facebook on your phone, do all the things that are necessary for you to really pay attention this morning to this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read verse 6 all the way down through verse 13, but then we're going to focus our attention just on verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. So join with me in reading. Follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Like I said, that's a difficult passage to deal with. It's going to take us two weeks at least to get all all the way through it. But, But as we begin dealing with that passage, I want to begin by by just sort of bringing you back up to speed to where we're at and how we've arrived at the place that, we've, that, that we're at today. And for the last couple of months, we've been working our way verse by verse, every phrase, every word through the book of 1 Corinthians. And up until this point in 1 Corinthians, if I was thinking of a way to just summarize what Paul's been teaching, what he's been focusing on up until this point, I would say that, that what Paul wants us to know is that the power of the gospel is in the message and not in the people who proclaim it. I think that that's the summary statement of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2 where we've arrived today. And remember that Paul's writing this letter to a group of people who are dealing with all sorts of errors. Really, that's the type of letter this is, is just a response to one error after another error. There are all types of errors. But the first error that he deals with is the error over dividing in the church based upon which man you like the most. Remember that. I mean, that's the key thing that Paul brings up first in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. It says, For it has been reported to me by closed people that there is quarreling among you. So they're actually fighting. It's not a quiet division. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. By the way, I always have to mention and qualify that that last one isn't the honorable people. Those are the people who just say, I won't follow any man. I'm I'm just doing my own thing. 
So there's people who are dividing over Paul or Apollos or Peter, all these people. And Paul's condemning the church for allowing themselves to, to be focused on the men who are proclaiming the message rather than the message itself. And he goes on to tell us what the message is in verse 18, for instance. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. So he's pleading with them to focus on the message, focus on the message, focus on the message of the cross. The cross is where it all begins and the cross is where it all ends for us as Christians. The cross is the single most important thing that we can ever focus our attention on. And unfortunately for these people, they had begun to focus their attention elsewhere on the men proclaiming the message rather than the message of the cross itself. I have to stop right there and tell you that as I was going over my notes this morning, it occurred to me that the message of the cross is the message that will be proclaimed for all eternity in heaven. You realize that? Just think of that. I looked and I was reading the book of Revelation this morning in chapter 5, and there's this vision of the Lamb who was slain. And he's standing, he steps forth. The one who was slain and, and there as he steps forth, all the creatures in heaven, all the angels in heaven begin to bow down and they begin to worship him for what he did at the cross. It's all about the cross. And I love that. I was even thinking about the old song. I wrote the lyrics down so I'd get it right. Do you remember this old song? I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell a story for those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory, here it is. When in scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song. It will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. Remember this song? I remember this brings back so many memories. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. The message of the cross. Paul is focused with laser intensity on the message of the cross. And, and he goes on in the remainder of that chapter, in the remainder of chapter 1, to say that God uses all sorts of people who are unexpected to be the messengers of the cross. Remember that? He took the fools. And exalted them above the wise. He took the the things that that the world says are nothing. And he he exalted them above the things that the world says are something. He took the things that are weak. And exalted them above the things that are strong in this world. In order that he would get all the glory when people responded to the message of the cross. All of this is just context. for I want you to understand that he's arguing all throughout this first chapter. And into the beginning of the second chapter. That it's the message that matters. It's the message of the cross that matters, not the person who's proclaiming it. And then we get into this idea that recurs over and over again all throughout chapter 1 and into chapter 2 of Paul sort of setting the wisdom of God over and against the wisdom of man. It's all over it. Verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And Paul in that culture where the Greeks are all gathered together and all they do all the time is debate and and have new philosophies and new ideas and new wisdom. And he says, bring me your wise. Bring me your scribes. Bring me the debaters of this age. Bring them all to me. And he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse, or verse 27, chapter 1. For God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. 
Over and over again, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, at the end of the passage we dealt with last week, where he says, Then my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I'm not speaking to you in the ways that, that we expect that a wise man would speak. They're not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So get the argument. Are you still with me? You sure? All right. So, so get the flow of what's going on here because Paul, he's building a case here that, that's going to reach its climax here in these verses. He's building a case against the wisdom of man and for the wisdom of God. And any time that Paul talks about the wisdom of, of men, you have to understand that he's talking about the worldviews of this age, the wisdoms, the philosophies of this world. And he makes it clear every time. That the wisdom of men is inferior, inferior to the wisdom of God. Now, this is so important for us because I, I think that we're living in a time when, in, in a place, in a setting, in a culture now where, where Christians and Christianity in general is looked at as sort of a, an old thing, a backwards thing. Christians are anti-intellectual. That's what our culture tells us. We're not thinking people. How could anybody who's reasonable, believe in all this stuff about a crucified Jew being the Savior of the world? How can anybody believe, take it a step further, how can anybody believe of all this stuff about a God we've never seen or touched creating everything? A world that says it's much more reasonable that it was all a cosmic accident, that everything came from nothing, and that we evolved out of the primordial slime and eventually through billions and billions of years of happenstance and accidents, we evolved into what we are today and then we stopped. If you can catch the sarcasm in that. I mean, the idea, though, is that, that, that Christians somehow are just slow thinkers and it's the, the wisdom of men triumphs over the wisdom of God and all these things. And Paul is reminding us today that the wisdom of God always crushes the wisdom of men. There's no contest. And right away in verse 6, you begin to see Paul uncover the, problem, uh, the problems of the wisdom of men. Look at it in verse 6. Where he says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. And now, don't miss that he's saying, he's, he's making it clear here, that it's not that we don't ever speak of any wisdom. It's not that we don't have a worldview. It's not that we don't have philosophical structures and understandings of things. He says, yes, we do. To the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, let's just stop right there and linger uh, for a few minutes and, and just talk about what Paul's getting at. And I was trying to think, what, what is it that Paul wants us to understand when he says that we impart wisdom, not a wisdom of men, which is just passing away. It's just passing away. And I thought, what are the things about the wisdom of man that make it inferior, other than God is always just in general superior to everything. But what is it about the wisdom of man that makes it so inferior to the wisdom of God? And I think that one thing that we can see immediately if we begin to think through this, is that the wisdom of man is always self-serving. Think about this with me. I mean, men will, sinful people will always find a way to marry themselves to a worldview that helps them reach their objective. 
You know what I mean by this? I mean, let's try this. Like I had a friend, a dear friend, uh, growing up who was addicted to all sorts of drugs. You name it, he did it. He, he did all sorts of things that I, I never imagined that anybody would want to do. And, and one day we were in the car and I asked him, I said, why? Why would you do that? I mean, what, what were you thinking? And his answer to me was, well, I just figure you only live once. You only live once, and I think that everybody should experience everything at least once in this life. That's his worldview. Don't, don't, get, don't, don't miss that what he was doing in that moment was stating his worldview. And what he was doing was he was stating a worldview that he had created for himself that allowed him to pursue all of his sinful desires. It was a self-serving wisdom, a self-serving worldview. Always do that. Find a man who's promiscuous, who sees no boundaries in his marriage, who does whatever he wants with whomever he wants. And you'll probably find somebody who has a worldview that says something like the idea that we're, you know, we're just all highly evolved animals. I'm just pursuing what's natural for an animal to pursue. That sounds ridiculous, but there are plenty of people who think that. There are plenty of people who think that that they're, because of their worldview, they can do whatever they want. A man who lies and cheats and steals to get ahead is basing his, his whole life upon a worldview that says there is no higher moral authority. There's nobody there to hold me accountable. I'm just going to do whatever I want because in the end, I'm the only one that matters. And don't miss this. The wisdom of men will always move in that direction. The, the wisdom of men will always be self-serving. But there's an old saying, and this sort of leads us to the second reason. There's an old saying that says that any man who marries himself to the wisdom of this age will soon find himself to be a widower. And you know what that saying means? It means that the wisdom of men is always changing. It just always is changing. You look at verse 6 again where he says it there, and that's what he's getting at. We do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to do what? Pass away. The wisdom of men comes and it goes. Isn't that what Solomon told us long before Paul ever wrote this? What things happen will happen again. Things repeat themselves. Things change. But there's nothing new under the sun. Things are just going around in circles. And and the idea here is that the wisdom of man is always Changing, And I'm sure that we could spend time, we could spend all of our time for the next 15 minutes or so, we could spend every moment of our time and I could go around the room and every one of you could think of a way in your own life where things have changed dramatically. Where ideas of right and wrong have changed dramatically. I mean, just for the sake of making sure you're all still alive, do do you agree with that? Right? Like, Like, you could think of multiple examples depending on your age. I'm not an old man. I look like sometimes, but I got lots of gray. I married Denise, and that caused all of that, all of it. The, uh, I love Denise. I'm just playing. She's not in here, so I'll just give you something so you can go tell her, because that's how everybody operates. But the, uh, but I can think of ways things are drastically different. The things that we, find morally acceptable. They're drastically different. Our culture's changing. And we can talk about how every generation 
sees drastic change from the prior generation, and then another generation rises after it. I, I think there's something interesting. I was watching something on television this week uh, that caught my attention, and it was a, a discussion about what's happening in the lives of the millennial generation right now. This is interesting because I don't know that there's ever been a generation. You know, we name our generations. I don't know if there's ever been a generation like the millennials that have, that have gained such attention from everyone. Mostly negative attention, right? And people look at the millennials, but, but there's never been a, a generation that, that, that's risen, that's changed so much in such a short amount of time, that's, that's had such an impact on our culture in such a short amount of time to where we, and I find this to be true with my oldest daughter, we were having a discussion the other night, and I came to realize, and this wasn't necessarily a right or wrong thing, I just came to realize that we don't even look at the world the same way. We don't see it through the same lens at all. And so you have this whole generation who's risen up, and they're, they're like social pioneers, and I think probably most of it's been negative, but social pioneers taking our culture in a certain direction and blazing trails everywhere they go and proud of it. But what caught my attention this week was this person who was doing a story about how things are changing. You know what's changing? They're getting older. And they're buying houses. And they're having children. And they're settling into their careers. And the older batch of millennials are now starting to swing a little bit back in their worldview towards where their parents may have been. And it's just an example of even a generation that comes along is so radically different that we don't even recognize it. Eventually, even their ideas change. And by the way, for those who stay on the radical side, another generation will come. And another generation will push the envelope even farther. And another generation will change things. It it happens. The, The wisdom of man is always changing. It's always changing. Don't marry yourself to the wisdom of the world because you'll find yourself to be a widow or a widower. It's always changing. But we have a better wisdom. And that's what Paul's getting at. Look at verse 7. This is what Paul, and and understand, I know the language is difficult. So I'm trying to get you to understand the core of what he's telling us here. In verse 7, he says, but, so he's putting this against what came before. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And just stop right there before we go any further. And what I want you to do is not get so focused on the word secret and hidden that you miss the words wisdom of God. Because what Paul really wants us to focus on here is the superiority of one wisdom over another. And he's already talked about the wisdom of man, and he said, what happens to the wisdom of man? It passes away. And now he's going to begin focusing on the wisdom of God. So we're not to be focused on the wisdom of man, but the wisdom of God. And and here we have these, these challenging verses, but look at the second half of the verse. He says, which God decreed, this wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. God's wisdom is better for one thing because it's eternal. It's unchanging. You know, the Bible teaches us that God never changes. Never. He doesn't change with the times. He doesn't change with the culture. The same God who met Moses in the wilderness 
is still seated on His throne today. The same Jesus that walked all over Jerusalem is there seated at His right hand today. The same Holy Spirit who did so many incredible and wonderful things in the New Testament is still present in us today. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so he says, this wisdom of God is an un- it's not something new. It's not something that's come about in this generation. It's not something that will change in the future. This is the wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. I love that statement. That God is concerned with us in His plans. Not primarily. He's always the centerpiece, but He is concerned with us. And I think that when He talks about the the, the wisdom which God decreed before uh, the ages, there's no doubt, no doubt, that He's having the same discussion He had in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, where He's talking about the story of redemption. That God created the heavens and the earth and mankind for His glory. And that we all have fallen into sin and separated by nature from God. But God sent His own Son to live and die for us as our substitute. And that all who trust in Jesus as Savior are saved and reconciled to God. And God receives all the glory. In Ephesians chapter 3, we're told that this is the very thing that God has been occupied with since before the foundation of the world. And there's no doubt that wrapped up in all of that, is not just how we get saved, but what happens to us when we get saved and after we get saved. So get that. So we're saying that the the wisdom of God for us and in us is supposed to be the governing factor in our life, not the wisdom of men. Verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they would, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there's this idea that we miss it. When we're focused on the wisdom of men, we miss the wisdom of God. Now do me a favor real quick. I'm going to try to land the ship, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick up next week just right where we left off. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Or, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. And this is a statement that you learned when you were just a little kid in Sunday school. A story, a parable, a saying of Jesus but it's important that we understand where it arrives or where, where, where we find this in our Bibles. Because we find this at the end of the longest single sustained teaching of Jesus in the New Testament where we have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount just giving us the principles by which we're called to live. And this is the wisdom of God contained in the words of Jesus about what it means to live a life this pleasing to God. And so he's going through Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. He's talking about a life that's pleasing to God and he deals with all sorts of things. Things we don't always like to deal with. He deals with issues of anger. Anybody have anger issues? Matthew chapter 5, anger issues, lust, divorce, integrity, revenge, loving your enemies, worrying, anxiety, being judgmental. I mean, just practical shoe leather stuff. And Jesus teaches on it and he gives us simple things to understand. None of them are hard to understand. He gives us simple statements to understand and then he comes to the end of it all and we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and he gives us this. And he says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a what? A wise man. 
How, how do we become wise? By being obedient to the Word of God. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so Jesus, plain and simple here, gives us a choice. Gives us a choice. Will we be wise or will we be fools? The choice is yours. Will you demonstrate wisdom or will you be a fool? The choice is yours. Will you pursue wisdom that lasts? Will you pursue wisdom that doesn't fade away? That no moth, no rust can destroy, no thief can break in and take? Will you pursue that kind of wisdom? Or will you pursue the wisdom of man that changes from today to tomorrow to the next day? It's never the same. It's fading away. It's passing away just like we are. It's your choice. Where will you build your life? That's the question. What foundation will your life be built upon? The wisdom of men or the wisdom of God?